Jesus is dying on the cross there. Our Lord is dying, Yahweh. Jesus is dying, dying for our sin. Dying for our sin. Mm, Yahweh. Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. He is buried, mm, Yahweh. Jesus is buried, but he will not stay. Yes, he will not stay. Listen. Mm, Yahweh. Jesus is rising, our Lord is rising. From the grave there, our Lord is rising. Yahweh, Jesus is rising, now He lives again. This morning, as we uh, as we open up God's Word in uh, John chapter 20, I want to talk about a tomb tells all and uh, tells a, a great, great story. We began this morning in our early service looking at the 20th chapter of John and the foot race, uh, verses 1 through 9 of uh, Peter and uh, and John to the empty tomb. And John stopped, and Peter just burst right in, and and uh, they, and they saw that the tomb was empty. After Mary had gone, while it was still dark, came back, told him, "This tomb is empty. He's gone." So they went to see it for themselves. So we pick up the story in verse 11 of John 20, and it reads this way: Now Mary, she went back to the tomb, stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, let me get to turn, at this, 
She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this hope. Help us to understand. Help us to open our hearts enough to receive this understanding of your word and what you've done and the price you've paid. And, and Lord, that separation <coughs> from that exists between yourself and us can, can go away and we can be close to you if we put our faith in you and our trust in you. And Lord, we thank you for all of this in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You see, deep down, we long to settle the question, what's the point of our human existence? What's the point of, of where we are? And, uh, uh, and that's the ultimate question that gives meaning to each moment of life. When we can find the answer to that question. And that's what I find uh, is so wonderful about uh, Easter is that it's a celebration of God's ultimate answer to our life. He's given us this, this answer. And not that God hasn't revealed himself through, through, through many, many other things uh, throughout human existence. He's always been there. And he tells us that, at least in the first chapter of Romans, that there's at least three different ways that we can know that God exists. And certainly we, we can see the, the power of God in, in creation. A creation that can fill our souls with wonder and awe of the beautiful things that, that we can see and, and, and admire. And, a, and we can also have a sense that there's a personal and perpetuating power to whom we belong. That we're a part of. And certainly we see it in the entire life and the ministry of Christ. We celebrate uh, uh, the birth of Christ, of course, at Christmas. God has come. He is here. God is in the form of flesh and blood. He came as a baby. But now at, at the whole point is Easter. The whole point is the empty tomb. He came so that on, the, on what we call Good Friday, he's, he's crucified and and dies for our sin. And sin is just another term of separation from God. He, he takes care of that, that all that, celebrate, that separation. That we can be in a right relationship with him. But nowhere, nowhere is God's ultimate word of response more settled and summed up than the empty tomb that we celebrate this morning. And in fact, tombs have always told us a little bit about a person, especially even uh, 
tombstones themselves have, uh, have uh, told us about people. And uh, you can have uh, tombstones uh, made if you're allowed to, uh, you know, with pictures uh, of something that represents uh, meaning in that person's life. And, uh, and, and that's just a, a, a very precious thing. We, in my mother's tombstone, uh, my mom and dad, they, they lived, uh, grew up in Kentucky, and there was a bridge there over, over uh, uh, big, or Little Sandy River across the street from where my grandparents lived. And so there was a covered bridge. And so uh, uh, my sister and I had them uh, engrave that on their, on their, on their headstone. And on, uh, on my mother-in-law's tombstone is, a, is an engraving of a picture of, of uh, Joan and her, her brother and sisters uh, that is on the back of that. So something with meaning can be put there. And maybe the, the uh, greatest tomb that uh, humankind has known was discovered not long ago uh, in 1922, so not long ago, King Tut's tomb in Egypt. And he ruled about the year 1344 B.C. at the age of nine. Now, can you imagine your nine-year-old ruling a, a one of the most powerful countries in the world? Uh, but here, we history tells us that, uh, that there was some infighting uh, in the family. And uh, the men that uh, found and opened up the tomb uh, and uh, saw King Tut's mummy, you can, they tell me that you can see wounds to the back of his hand. So maybe, maybe things weren't all, all happy times with, uh, with, with King Tut. But the, we learn in that, in finding that, of his wealth. As we, as you see there, it took seven weeks to get the treasures out that was put down there with his body. Uh, there were seven boats that were down under there and, and uh, many chairs that were, that were covered with gold and thrones of, of different sizes and kinds, and chests that were full of gold and solid gold masks and gold shrines. Seven weeks to take to be able to take all this out. I think this picture uh, shows some of the uh, numbers where they itemized many of the things that were there before they took them out. But just packed into, because they believed that when this person died, all this stuff he was going to be able to use and take it with him. And here, you know, 3,000, 3,200 years later, you know, they, we open it up and this is, this is still there where they put it. You know, it hasn't been moved. So consider by contrast the simple tomb of Jesus which changed the world. And so this morning through an empty tomb, God tells us that his power is ultimate. His power is, is supreme. The pyramids of Egypt are, are famous because they contain the mummified bodies of ancient Egyptian kings. And Westminster Abbey in London is revered because within its walls rests the bodies of, of English nobles and notables. Uh, Muhammad's tomb uh, is noted for the stone coffin and the bones that are inside. Arlington Seminary, a cemetery, not seminary, some of the seminaries are dead, but, uh, but Arlington Cemetery in Washington is revered as the 
as the honored resting place of many outstanding Americans, along with many, many soldiers that gave their lives for our freedoms. And, but the garden tomb of Jesus is famous because it's empty. There's nothing in there. And, they're, and they're, they're, it, it was only borrowed for, what, three days. On the third day, he, he had no more use for it. So there is the ultimate demonstration of power in Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of countless prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. And you read through the Bible uh, that he was, you can, you can read in the Old Testament how it describes that he was, uh, he was beaten and tortured and, and how bad he was tortured and he was buried. It talks about his grave. It talks about his resurrection. And uh, just uh, some, some very well-known prophecies come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, and it talks about, about the, the crucifixion. Well, those words were written 1,000 years before Jesus even lived and 600 years before they invented crucifixion as a form of death. So that was a demonstration of power over all of life. It transformed tra um, fearful lives of the disciples and infused them with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost 50 days later, and it changed the world. Changed the world. Yet some hearts at that time, when Jesus was speaking and walking and teaching and talking, there were, there were some people that, uh, that felt threatened. But what did Jesus say? If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And it was true. They weren't, they weren't convinced then. Yet the evidence still stands. Now some suggest that Jesus wasn't really dead. Now, now he was beaten until he was unable to stand. He was nailed to a cross. And in order to do that, they had to dislocate both shoulders, pulling his arms in both directions, pierced in his side, Water and blood came out when they did that, showing that his heart had stopped beating. Four experts, four eyewitnesses, uh, basically signed a death certificate telling about the fact that he was dead. He was prepared for burial with 100 pounds of spices and garments, almost like a mixed-up mixed gummy wrap is, is what that amounted to. A stone that was large enough at that time and tradition uh, in those times, the stone was probably one and a half to, uh, to, to two tons. A four, three to four thousand pound stone rolled down into a channel. And uh, it took 20 men to move such a stone. Extra guards were placed because they thought the, the body would be stolen. Uh, there was a Roman seal uh, put on there to prove that it wasn't done. And it could not have been, if, they, if Jesus wasn't really dead, and if he was just drugged and, and uh, passed out, uh, then they, here's Jesus with all the scars and all the blood, and, and, his, and he couldn't have walked straight because of the way he was beaten and, uh, and dislocated in his body. I'm alive, and you can be alive too. You know, that's really hopeful, you know. But uh, Jesus showed up with only the scars in his hands and his feet and his side when, he's, when he spoke to the disciples. All the rest of them were gone. 
Now, a recovering Jesus wouldn't be, wouldn't be very effective, but a resurrected Jesus would be. And others said the disciples stole him. Now, very quickly, these were fearful disciples. They ran and hid. They were behind locked doors. They were afraid the Romans were going to crucify them next. So they, they would have had to, let's think about this, they would have had to overtake the patrol of guards, move the stone, which we already said takes 20 men to do, demonstrate his interaction with the public, with others. You know, uh, here, you help him wave his arm. You know, you, you help him, let's walk, help him walk down the street. That, and so they would have, they would have uh, uh, later, these fearful men, like we said a minute ago, they were transformed into relentless apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. Every one of them were martyred, except for one. All 11, well, 10 out of 11 were, were martyred. One committed suicide, Judas, Judas. And this was all for a resurrected Lord whom they created themselves. I, I have a problem with that. That why would they die for somebody they made up with a lie? Now, others said it was the wrong tomb. Not a graveyard, but one grave in a garden. And Mary and the women, they would have had to have been wrong. Peter and John ran there. They ran to the wrong place. Joseph of Arimathea, who was the original tomb owner, he, he we're trying to say that Joseph was a smart man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's not smart enough to find where, he, uh, uh, where his tomb is that he gave to Jesus. So if it was the wrong place, the, the, the Roman guards who were they, they, the ones that the angels uh, uh, showed up and the Roman guards, they passed out. You know, they didn't die at that moment, but they passed out. Then later, his body, these Roman guards were taken away and they were killed. They could have said, hey, this isn't the place, it's over there, and saved their own lives. So the truth is, Peter stood 40 days later, no, I'm sorry, 50 days later, and proclaimed at Pentecost he had risen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was, uh, he appeared before 500 people, and many of those 500 people were still alive. They could have, they could have uh, said that's a, that was, that's a false uh, part of your letter you wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So those, it just kind of, uh, it doesn't make sense. These ideas don't make sense. So then we turn to people like uh, writer Josh McDowell, who initially set out to be an atheist. And you probably are also familiar with the story of Lee Strobel, a, a newspaper reporter, but Josh McDowell uh, set out to be an atheist in his life as a professor in a university. And, and uh, one of his students said, Professor, why can't you refute Christianity? And his answer was for the simple reason of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't have an answer for that. Because a Roman historian tells about it, Tertullius, and then there's Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us the same thing, that Jesus was, had a great following uh, of people and disciples, and then he was killed, but later he was seen again. That's a head-scratcher. How does that happen? How does that happen? So after, uh, after studying, 
there's another professor, Thomas Arnold, author of the three-volume history of Rome, and uh, he wanted to determine some facts because he was writing about Rome. He wanted to determine some facts about Jesus Christ and, and the sect, the group uh, of people called Christians. And then he finally, after studying this, he finally writes, I have for many years studied the histories of other times and examined and weighed the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So, so historians tell us. Dr. Frank Morrison, a, a lawyer, he, he was also set out during his lifetime to, to prove that, that Jesus' Jesus's resurrection was nothing but a, a fairy tale happy ending uh, to the life of Jesus Christ. So after studying, he came up also with a different conclusion. And the sheer weight of evidence compelled him to conclude that Jesus actually did rise from the dead and he wrote the book who moved the stone another man which I quote quite often his name is uh, uh, Charles uh, Clive Staves Lewis C.S. Lewis uh, the uh, author of uh, Lion Witch in the Wardrobe and uh, he was a literary scholar former professor of medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge University so the last thing when he first started studying this, the last thing that he wanted to do was defend Christianity. The last thing. He didn't believe. And so he started studying, and he started digging, and he started looking into it, and he finally came to uh, an intelligent decision in his life, and he said this, you must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and I admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert. Praise the Lord. The empty tomb tells of his ultimate power, a power with an ultimate purpose, and uh, secondly, through an empty tomb, God tells us his priority is people. In the tomb of King Tut, we see wealth. In the contrast, Jesus' empty tomb, we, we find the humility of a God who has come. And Jesus even tells us in John or in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost, that's you and I. That's us. And he described the king of hosts as a shepherd who left the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. And when found, it says in, in Luke 15, all heaven rejoiced. So maybe that's a value that we need to think about for us. How that God looks at us and the value he places on you. As, as an individual, uh, a gym dealer, let me see if I got this right here, there it is. In 1986, a, uh, a gym dealer was strolling through the aisles in Tucson, Arizona at a gym and mineral show when it, 
in a box in one of the stands. He's, he was kind of rummaging through. He noticed a blue violet stone. This is a picture of it, uh, the size and shape of a potato. And he looked it over, then as calmly as possible picked it up and walked, knowing possibly what he had, over to the, to the dealer sitting at the table. Uh, you, you want $15 for this? And the seller, looking at the rock, wasn't as pretty as the others that were in the box, so he said, uh, uh, I'll, I'll take 10. So the man, real calmly, reached in his wallet and pulled out a $10 bill, and if I was him, I would have ran out the door. But he placed the $10 bill in his hand, and he turned and walked away. And then he went straight to a dealer after he wiped it all off, and they verified that it was a... A 1905 carat natural star sapphire, 800 carats, uh, larger than the largest stone of its kind, appraised in 1986, 1986 at 2.28 million dollars. And it took a lover of stones to recognize the sapphire's worth, and it takes the lover of souls to recognize the value of ordinary looking people like you and I in our hearts, in our lives, and, and what makes us up, uh, who we are. Each one of us are, are valuable in his sight. As, as human beings, we look at each other and see frail and flawed. As a father, God looks at us and sees a child, a hurting son or daughter that needs help, that needs him. If they would just choose choose to, to open themselves up to him. So the empty tomb reminds us of what matters to God. And that's, that's you. And that's each one of us. And that's all the people that, that you meet out there. And thirdly, the, the empty tomb tells us that his peace is beyond circumstances. The first words of our risen Lord to his disciples we talked about this morning was, was peace be with you. And it's a peace that speaks of the fullness that he wants in our own lives and existence. And it's been said that the great tragedy of our lives is that we live between the shame of our failures and the fear of our future. We drag that around with us. What we did in the past and what we, the mistakes we might have made or, or done or said and we just pack that up and we carry it around with us wherever we go. But he asks us to come to us and to come to him in a place of prayer. And he will he is he is willing and able to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to, to give us that, that new start, that new day. We don't have to drag that old thing around. And when we let go of the past, we can look better at our future. Amen? All of a sudden, that might look better if we don't have to drag this piece of junk around with us all the time. What I, what I am, what I used to be, I beat myself up. He is here among us. He is with us. He bore all the weight of our sin, that rejection on the cross. And he sends us forward into a future that can be bright. That can be something worth living. 
if we would just turn that over to him. And he wants us, using the word confession means to me, i got to speak it. And how many times are we told to do that? We come up to our kids after something and we say, what did you do? What did you do? You know, we want them to name it, right? We want them to understand what they did. Well, I did bad. I said something bad. Well, what was it that was bad? Let's try not to do that again. And so we have to know what it is. We have to identify it. The Word of God tells us in 1 John, confess. And that confession means I name it. But it's not a confession I make to another person. It's a confession I make to him. I make to him. I, I did this. I don't want to do it again. Help me. Give me the power not to. And you see if that doesn't work. See if that's not a first step forward. And finally, you get four points this morning. Through an empty tomb, God tells us he is here. He is here. Hallelujah. He is here. Amen. Now, as we consider that other tomb in Egypt, a man by the name of Howard Carter on November 4th, 1922, finds the first step as they're, as they're brushing away sand and dirt. They find a step. And then that just leads them to more and more. I almost picture, when I talk about this and read about this, I almost picture uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, But they're, they're brushing off the first step and they move down to the second step and they go down to the next step. And he had taken 10 years of digging to find this tomb and spending a half a million dollars. Now, a half a million dollars in 1922 is a lot of money. I don't know what they would translate into, into 2019 dollars, but, but a half a million in 1922. So they, they found all their way to the bottom and they uncovered a door and they were able to move everything away from the first door of that and, and opened it up. And he goes in first because he's the leader of this expedition and, and put up the, most of the money. What do you see? And he's holding up a lantern and he says, he comes out, he says, marvelous things. And he walks out from that room where we saw all of these things, plus the gold-covered uh, sarcophagus of, of King Tut. He comes out of there and sits down and he starts to weep and cry. And he puts his head in his hands. Then he says, ten years ago I dug 18 inches from this spot and didn't see anything. And then we moved to a different direction. And for 10 years, we went around until finally, 18 inches away from where I was when we first started, there was that first step. 10, ten years of his life on what he missed that was so close. Don't miss Jesus this morning. When asked, are you the son of God? A point blank question to Jesus as he was being tried after he was arrested and in the first beating that he took. Yes. And then he says the final sign is that the son will be raised from the dead. 
this close, this close. And I know in my life, I went through many years thinking, well, I got to, before I come and, and know God, well, I got to clean up. I got I to gotta stop doing this. I, I got to stop doing that. I got to, uh, I don't know if I can do it. I've got all these habits. I, I got to quit these habits. And I don't even know if it's true. And so I went on a personal journey of, of digging and diving and finding and archaeologically and, and, uh, and historically and finally came up with the answer. This is the only, this is the only thing it can be. This is true. And then coming to a place of prayer and saying, if that's true, then you also say you, get, you can give me the power through your Holy Spirit if I change my mind on what I'm, the way I'm living called repentance. If I do that, you give me that help. And, and he did. I didn't have to do all that junk. He wants to take us the way we are. He wants to use us where we are. And my prayer to him was, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you have shown the way. Because I never want to live this close from the answer and then later look back and say, I missed it. I missed it. Let's all stand. In the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus tells us that he's knocking at the, at the, at the door of our hearts to open up our hearts to him. That he wants to come in and he wants to, to dine with us and spend time with us. And if you, you this morning want his peace and his fellowship and his forgiveness and, and to, to find out what God can have with you, all you have to do is talk to him where you're standing right now. As if he was standing there with you. So we want to bow our heads and close our eyes and finish this morning speaking to our Lord and, and living Savior. Father, I've done some things that don't make sense and I've been wrong. And Lord, I, I ask that you, would, that you would help me. Help me, Lord, as I, I change my attitude about that which I've done and turn to you and put more trust in you and ask, Lord, for, for your help. We know that, and we've looked at already this morning, that history proves that the tomb was empty. History proves that you died and was seen again. And Father, we love you and we, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you give us a second chance. You give us a second chance. You, you don't make it hard. You just want us to, to believe in you and to trust in you. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. I pray for everybody that's here this morning that, that we can take this Easter 2019 and we can point back and say, I prayed. I prayed when we stood. And I gave it all to you. And Lord, we're looking forward to hearing about changes 
that are going to happen. We thank you for the people that are here. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that keeps us and carries us. We love you, Lord, and give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. please take your time leaving. We even, we even invited some kids in the neighborhood to come. So there may be kids coming from every direction. Be careful in the parking lot. Pick up a bag in the first room. The kids can pick up a bag in the first room. From a lit from from Alex. Pick up a bag from Alex. <laughs> <laughs>